It's really a, a joy again to be here with you. I'm sorry that it has to be under these circumstances. I sent Pastor, I just texted Pastor Ken and told him I was here doing his job for him here. So, <laughs> uh, Let's turn on our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you have it, I'd like to speak from a text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 26. Let's begin reading at verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." Christianity was commonly looked down upon in the Roman Empire in the ancient world during the first century as it was coming into being and the centuries following. One Roman historian, a man by the name of Tacitus, writing at the end of the first century, just uh, 50 or so years, 60 or so years after Christ, He called Christianity, quote, hideous and shameful, a deadly superstition. Another Roman, a man by the name of Pliny, who was the governor of Bithynia, the Roman province of Bithynia, writing at the beginning of the second century, called it, and I quote, a perverse and extravagant superstition. And not much has really changed down through the ages, down through the centuries. If you just look at the way Christians and their beliefs are portrayed in the popular media and culture, it's not a very pleasant uh, experience. I'm sure you're aware. Whenever we see a Christian on TV uh, or in some video or some movie, uh, especially a preacher, uh, they're commonly depicted as a buffoon, an idiot, some sort of con man, some sort of con artist. Well, should we be surprised at this? Should this depiction really surprise us as Christians? Well, not really, because Paul comments on this. In verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to the unsaved, to the unsaved world. And in verse 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Greeks. To Gentiles, Paul says, the gospel appears to be a bunch of foolishness. About the year A.D. 178, a pagan philosopher by the name of Celsus produced what is generally thought to be the most comprehensive written attack against Christianity up until that time. At one point, Celsus claimed that the appeal of Christians to faith instead of rational argument 
uh, he said that, that kind of presentation succeeded in converting only what he called, quote, the foolish, the dishonorable and stupid, and only slaves, women, and children. Now, we obviously take uh, issue with the assessment of Celsus. We obviously take issue with his view about those who come to Christ. Yet it is true, in a sense, that most people who come to Christ, most converts, don't usually come from the world's beautiful people. You don't go to Hollywood to find a lot of Christians. Christians don't usually come from the economically privileged for the most part, from the intellectually elite. If you're looking for a lot of Christians, don't go to the University of Michigan this morning and look for them among the faculty there. Instead, most believers are just your common, everyday, average folk. And as Paul says in this passage that I read this morning, this is no accident. This is no accident. God has purposely designed it this way. This is what he tells us in verses 26 through 31. Paul tells us that God has purposely chosen a certain kind of people for salvation so that there will be no human boasting, so that human boasting will be excluded. Salvation is totally of grace. Nothing is deserved and nothing is earned. And the kind of people that God has chosen for salvation, Paul says, reinforces that truth. I'm sure all of us will readily confess that we in no way deserve the salvation that God has graciously given to us through Jesus Christ. We did nothing to earn it. God has chosen to give this salvation to us freely. And Paul says God has purposely chosen a certain kind of people for salvation so that all human boasting will be excluded. So as you look at this passage this morning, I want us to look at a couple of things here. First of all, let's look at the people whom God has chosen. Who are these people that God has chosen for salvation? First of all, we see their description. Paul describes the people that God has chosen for salvation in several of our verses. In verse 26... Paul begins by calling upon the Corinthians to reflect on their status when they were first saved. Think about what it was like when you were first saved. He says, brothers and sisters, verse 26, think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you were called. The word here, called, the Greek word klesis, does not mean vocation, that is, what one does for a living, Instead, almost every time Paul uses this word calling, he's referring to God's calling us to salvation, God's divine call to salvation. Theologians have technical words for this. They call it the efficacious call, or they refer to it as the effectual call. God calls and people respond. And so Paul says, consider God's calling of you to salvation. Think about your situation when you were first saved. The, the apostle has already spoken of the idea of God calling us to salvation back in verse 9. In verse 9 he says, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, 
Jesus Christ our Lord. And in verse 23 and 24 he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In describing the kind of people that God has called to salvation, Paul does so negatively. He speaks it to us, first of all, negatively. He uses three terms in verse 26 to describe the kind of people the Corinthians were not. He says, you were not, here's what you were not at the time of your calling to salvation. This is what you were not. They were not among the wise. They were not among the influential, Paul says. They were not among those of noble birth. Paul draws his language here from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah chapter 9. The Corinthian believers, for the most part, Paul says, were not among the wise. They were not among the intellectual elite of their city. They weren't, among, they weren't the, the influential people. They weren't the politically powerful people, the opinion makers, the people with clout for the most part. They were not from among the, the, nobil, the nobility. They were not from the aristocracy of the city. So when the Corinthians were saved or to use Paul's terminology, when God called them to salvation, the majority of them were not among the wise, the influential, or noble-born of the city. At least they were not these things by human standards. Notice Paul says in verse 26. Paul is recognizing that these categories of wise, influential, and noble birth have no eternal significance. They're very important in our world. But to God, they have no real significance. They're human standards, Paul says. They are standards of this world. They're the kinds of things that our society and our culture highly esteem. So when Paul says that Christians are not for the most part among the wise, he doesn't mean that Christians are somehow less intelligent But by human standards, Paul says, as the world views Christians, we Christians are not viewed as being very wise because we reject so much of what the world thinks is important and what the world thinks is right. It seems, in in light of this, it seems somewhat ironic that many times Christians make a big deal Uh, out of it when some rich person is saved or some famous person comes to Christ, some important person professes faith, this is blown up, this is talked about. Why is it that so much attention is given to Christian athletes, you know, to, to media personalities, to pop singers when we hear about a profession of faith? You know, it kind of reminds me of the Tebow phenomenon. Um, what is it with Tebow? Tim Tebow. I see some of you may be saying out there, who, who is this Tebow? I don't <laughs> Generally, if you just say Tebow, millions of people will know who I'm talking about. Tim Tebow is an American football player. He's a, one of the most well-known football players because he's an outspoken, professing Christian. 
and he's got a lot of attention, even though he doesn't play very much. He's kind of a backup quarterback, if you call him that, for the New York Jets. But this past uh, Easter, he spoke, and 30,000 people, Christians, came to see him. 30,000 Christians or people came to hear Tim Debo speak. Now, I, many of us love Tebow. We like Tebow. We don't have anything against Tebow. But why is so much attention given to these Christian celebrities? Why should we think that their opinions or their experience of salvation is any more important, is any more significant than that of any other believer? We could be in danger of paying too much attention to and giving too much homage to the money and influence of the, and, and the so-called wisdom of our day. That kind of thinking destroys humility and it minimizes the grace of God. And we have to be very careful about that kind of worship and, and, and idolization and those kinds of things. We, we, we don't want to take Paul's words here to mean that those who are wise, those who are influential, those who are of noble birth cannot be saved. Paul is careful to say that not many of the wise, not many of the influential, not many of the noble born whom God has called to salvation. The story is often told of a woman by the name Selena Hastings. Selena Hastings, the Countess of Huntington. She was a wealthy and influential noble lady who lived in 18th century England. Uh, she came to Christ uh, a little later in life, and after she came to Christ, she became a very evangelical Christian, and she did much to influence people of her own uh, class. She gave a lot of money, a lot of support to preachers like George Whitfield and others. She used her wealth to try to spread the gospel, the cause of Christ. And she was fond of saying that she was saved by an M, the letter M, because God's word declares not many noble. It doesn't say not any noble. Even in the Corinthian church, there were a few people who were well off. There were people by human standards who were apparently quite wealthy and quite influential. We know about Crispus and Gaius and a, a man by the name of Erastus who was the director of public works there. So there were influential and wealthy people in the congregation. God's grace can reach anyone at any stands, any place in life. But being well-regarded in our society, being well-regarded in our culture is not really an advantage. In fact, according to Paul, it might be considered a disadvantage. Many Christians, says Paul, most Christians, I think Paul would say, are not ultimately from the upper crust. Why, why is that? Why is that so? Is Christianity somehow more appealing to lower class people? Not really. Christianity naturally appeals to no one. Christianity naturally appeals to no one. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God. No unsaved person, no matter who they are, what their economic or social background, welcomes the things of the Spirit of God. The unsaved are all alike. 
Paul says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks after God. No, we're all the same. All human beings are the same in this sense. Well, what then is the reason? Why has God chosen these kinds of people for salvation? Those who are not generally from, the, from those who are considered the wisest or those who are the most influential are those who are the most wealthy. Why is it that that's the way things are? Why has God done this? Well, let's look at their origin. We've seen their description. Let's look at their origin. How did these people come to Christ? How did the Corinthians come to Christ? And Paul says, the reason that most Christians are not from the economically privileged, they're not from the intellectual elite, they're not from the politically powerful, is because God has so designed it that way. Notice verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world. But God chose the foolish things of the world. Or we might translate, but God chose what the world counts foolish. That's the, the idea. God chose what the world counts foolish. God chose the weak things, Paul says. In verse 28, he says, God chose the lowly things. In these verses, we see that Paul makes use of various expressions to emphasize the fact that salvation is totally of God. We've already observed that Paul uses the language of calling in verse 28, referring to God's effectual or efficacious call. When God calls, sinners respond. They listen, and they respond positively to the gospel. In verses 27 and 28, we see the language of election, God chooses. We come to Christ, my friends, because God chooses us. It's interesting to note that except for the word wise here, Paul uses these neuter terms. Notice we see in English the word things, neuter things, the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things, the despised things, the things that are not. In the original language, Paul is using what are called neuter expressions or non-personal expressions. But in spite of that, Paul is talking about people here. He's not talking about things, he's talking about people. He's describing people as things here. Weak things, lowly things, but he means people. It's strange for us in English to refer to people as things, but it's not uncommon in the original language here. Paul apparently uses this kind of expression because he wants to spare the Corinthians. He wants to spare a sort of a blunt description. In other words, Paul doesn't want to tell the Christians that they're a bunch of foolish, weak, base, despised people, though many of them were. He is instead focusing not on the individuals so much, but on the qualities that are characteristic of these individuals. The idea is not to demean the Corinthians personally, but he wants to exalt the grace of God. In comparison to God, we're nothing. We're just despised things. We're lowly things. Paul wants to emphasize the fact that people come to Christ because God chooses them. Paul strikes this same chord at the end of our section down in verse 30. He says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of him. The New American Standard Bible translates it this way. But by his doing are you in Christ Jesus. Christians owe their existence to God's prior activity. 
Some people become confused about God's sovereignty in their salvation because they think they chose God without any help from God at all. They mistakenly consider their life to have begun when they confessed faith in Christ. This is understandable. Because our conversion, our coming to Christ, our coming to repentance and faith is in reality the fruit or result of an inward change that we didn't detect. We didn't know what God was doing in us at first. God was at work in us before we ever knew what was happening to us. The key to understanding redemption is that we cannot come to faith unless a change is made in us. Spiritual birth is God's work, not our work. It's based on His will. It's based on His desire. It's based on His choosing. Remember John 1.12? Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. But the next verse says, Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision, or a husband's will, but of God. We exercise faith, but the Bible never refers to that as choosing. The language of choosing with reference to salvation has God as its author. Jesus said, John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Ephesians 1, 4, Paul says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Salvation is totally of grace. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is earned. But why did God choose mostly a certain class of people? Why did he choose a certain class of people that the world considers to be foolish, weak, lowly, and despised? The nobodies. Well, Paul will now tell us. We come now to the purpose of God in choosing people like you and me for this wonderful, great salvation. The purpose of God in choosing Paul tells us that God had two purposes in choosing whom he did. First, he says in verse 27 that he has chosen the foolish things, he says, to shame the wise. The first reason God has chosen people like you and me is to shame the wise. And in a similar fashion, in verse 28, he says, God has chosen the things that are not or what we would call the nobodies, to nullify the things that are. In other words, God delights to puncture the pretensions of this rebellious world where proud men and women parade their intellects. God chooses the simple. Where wealthy people evaluate each other on the basis of their stock portfolios, God chooses the poor. We're self-centered leaders, lust for power. God chooses the nobodies. All the things are, that is the things that appear to have substance and are highly esteemed by this fallen world, are nullified, Paul says in his language. They are written off as having no eternal significance since God doesn't attach his salvation to any of these kinds of things. In fact, he goes out of, way to, got out of his way to overturn their presumption. God chooses the nobodies. But God's ultimate reason for his choice is found in verse 29. 
He says, that no one may boast before him. Not only has God shamed and nullified the world by choosing so many people whom the world does not highly esteem, God has purposely taken this step, we're told, to shatter human boasting. God acts to redeem human men and women, fallen men and women, because he's gracious and for no other reason. It's not because he sees anything in us. It's totally and completely of grace. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace, or it's because of grace, Paul says, that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so no one may may boast. God does not owe forgiveness or eternal life to any of us. What if God passed out his salvation like the immigration departments of many countries pass out their visas. The more education, the more skills, the more sophistication, the more wealth, generally it's easier to get into a certain country. If God's salvation were like that, then many of us who would come to Christ could boast and say, look, God chose me because of these qualities. We would have a legitimate ground for boasting. Remember what Paul said about Abraham in Romans 4, verse 2. If Abraham were justified by works, he had something to boast about. You could boast. If God chose us for salvation, if we were saved because of something that was in us, we could boast. But God has purposely, for the most part, chosen people like the Corinthians. So, Paul says, no one may boast before him. If we understand the gospel correctly... Then we must say with Paul, as he says in Romans 3.27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told, remember, in Luke chapter 18, about these two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and one was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed. He said, God... I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not like these robbers and evildoers and adulterers. I'm not like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He wouldn't even come near. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Our passage here in Corinthians is not teaching that Christians have nothing to boast about. Rather, if we boast about the things the world boasts about, we're boasting about the wrong things. But look at what Paul says in verse 31 of our text. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The word therefore that begins verse 31 looks back to verse 30 where Paul says, it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We can glory. We can boast in the things of God and our great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who has provided us, Paul says, with righteousness and holiness and redemption. As Paul says in Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I noted at the beginning of, our, of this message, the basic teaching of our passage is that God has mostly chosen a certain kind of people for salvation so that all boasting will be excluded. Salvation is totally of grace. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is earned. One commentator writes this, and let me quote what he says. He says, God, it turns out, deliberately chose the foolish things of the world, the cross and the Corinthian believers, so that he could remove forever from every human creature any possible grounds on their part of standing in his presence with something in their hands. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Not a single thing that any of us, any of us possesses will advantage him or her before the living God. Not brilliance, not clout, achievement, money, or prestige. By choosing people like you and I, God has declared that he has forever ruled out every imaginable human system of gaining his favor. It is all, trust him completely, or nothing. When I reflect on a passage like this, my mind goes back to the life and career of Dr. Carl Sagan. I don't know if you ever heard of Dr. Carl Sagan. Dr. Sagan was, by all accounts, a brilliant astronomer, educator, and author. I've listened to him on TV, heard him speak numerous times. Dr. Sagan published about 600 scientific papers and, and popular articles. He wrote 20 books. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 1978. He held a Ph.D. in astronomy and astrophysics from the University of Chicago as well as 22 honorary degrees. Sagan was perhaps the world's greatest popularizer of science, reaching millions of people through newspapers, magazines, television broadcasts. He was quite well known for a PBS, public television, uh, series he did called Cosmos. It was widely watched. It won the Emmy, it won Peabody Awards, it was actually the most watched uh, series ever in public television history. It was seen by more than 500 million people in 60 countries. They had a book called Cosmos that accompanied the series. It was on the bestseller list for 70 weeks. It's still the best-selling science book in history. My father, on the other hand, had almost nothing in common with Carl Sagan. He was a simple man. He had at best maybe a fourth or fifth grade education. He had no great accomplishments to speak of. But he and Sagan had two things in common. They both died in 1996, and they both died of a very rare blood disease called myelodysplasia. But my father professed faith in Jesus Christ, and I think I know where my father is today. But where is Carl Sagan today? Sagan was an atheist. He ridiculed the truths of Scripture. He denied the claims of Christ. Sagan said, and I quote, If the play of the world is produced and directed by an omnipotent and omniscient God, does it not follow that every evil that is perpetrated is God's doing? 
He then asserts, quote, the cosmos is all there is or was or ever will be. We are, in the most profound sense, children of the cosmos. As the ancient myth-makers knew, we are the children equally of the sky and of the earth. Earth is our home, our parent. Our kind of life arose and evolved here. We are dependent on the sun, which warms us and feeds us and permits us to see. Our ancestors worshipped the sun, and they were far from foolish. If we must worship a power greater than ourselves, does it not make sense to revere the sun and stars? With that kind of testimony from a brilliant man, I ask you, where is Carl Sagan today? Verse 19 of our text says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm thankful for my salvation. I'm sure if you're saved, you're thankful for yours. But I don't owe it to any accomplishments. I don't owe it to any educational or other accomplishments. It's totally and completely due to the grace of God, God's unmerited favor to me, a wicked sinner. And if you're saved today, it's because of that same grace of God. So let's thank God for his grace to us. And if you're here, friends, today, and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I hope you'll consider the gospel of Jesus Christ we've talked about. It is of grace. There's nothing you can do. You must only trust in Christ, in the cross, his death for you. And I hope you'll receive that grace of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for the truth of Scripture that reminds us of who you are and who we are, that we're nothing. But in your mercy and grace... You've chosen to bring the gospel to us, to give us life, to show us our need, to bring us to repentance and faith. And we pray, Father, that if there's any here this morning who have not trusted Christ, that you'll show them their need and bring them to Christ, we pray. Thank you for this great salvation we enjoy. Help us, Lord to be thankful as we should. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.